Good afternoon. It is a blessing to be here today. It's a joy to see many visitors with us. Um, we're very, very thankful to, to have the, the problem that we're, we're looking for another assembly space. Um, but it's certainly not uh, about the building. It's not about the numbers. It's about the souls that those numbers represent. Uh, and I, I hope that our time here together can always be fruitful in, in drawing our, our souls closer to the Lord. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me as we study today. If there is anything of value that's going to be said from this pulpit, it's not going to come from Grady Huggins. It's going to come from the words of Almighty God. What comes to mind when you hear the word slavery? For many in our country today, slavery is synonymous with torture, oppression, dehumanization, injustice, racism, and human trafficking. The transatlantic slave trade and plantation era South has left a dark stain and deep scar on the history of this nation that has always claimed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. And because many today view any acknowledgement of our nation's past sins or shame for our nation's history as unpatriotic, talking about slavery from the pulpit can be somewhat taboo among at least white churchgoers. And certainly slavery can be a painful and sensitive topic for those that feel that the oppression of their ancestors has been swept under the rug. But the Bible has a lot to say about slavery. And I think it's important that we take some time to consider it. The Bible was written in a world where slavery was broadly, even universally, accepted as an institution. By the time of the New Testament, it is estimated that 85 to 90 percent of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves, by some definition of that word. Basically, every major empire the world has ever seen was built on the backs of slaves. So how does the Bible address this culturally accepted institution of slavery? Well, by those today who see the word slavery as synonymous with torture, oppression, and dehumanization, the Bible may not handle slavery to our satisfaction. But if you've been keeping up with your Bible reading, you've probably already encountered some passages regarding slavery in the Old Covenant that make you a little bit uncomfortable. My, my goal today is for us to see these passages in context and ultimately to see the goodness of God's character shining through them, despite the brokenness of the society that they addressed. Before we get too far in talking about what the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, has to say about slavery, I want to first give us a caution as we approach any topic such as this within the scriptures. We need to be very cautious in questioning Almighty God's morality. Anytime we begin to position ourselves as judges over God's word, instead of students and subjects of it, we are treading on dangerous ground, whether it be in regard to slavery or gender roles or warfare or the death penalty or human sexuality. If we start to measure God's word by our own culture's definitions and standards of morality, 
then we ultimately have dethroned our creator and set ourselves up in his place. We have traded the divine morality for our own human morality, an objective morality for our own subjective morality. Notice in Job chapter 40, as Job has begun in his life and in his situation to question the justice of God and even challenge the justice of God, Notice God's response to him in Job 40, starting in verse 7. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like his? God's response to Job's challenging of his justice is, wait a second, Job you need to remember who you're talking to. I created you. If the God of the Bible is, in fact, the true and living God, then it is ridiculous to think that he created you and I with a higher sense of morality than he himself possesses. And so when it comes to coming uh, to the scriptures, we need to make sure that we're ready to listen to God's standards, of morality. We're re- ready to learn from it. Our society's sense of morality is not a safe measure for us to use. Isaiah 5 talks about society during the times of uh, Israel. In Isaiah's time that they had substituted evil for good and good for evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness, but bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And so whatever the issue may be, we need to make sure that we're not measuring God by society's morality. We're rather measuring our morality by God's ultimate standards. If we encounter something in the scriptures that I have a moral objection to, there are two possibilities. Number one, I may not understand it in its proper context. Or number two, my sense of morality needs to be adjusted. Now, I think as we talk about slavery, there may be a great number of things that are going to fit category number one, where we may need to make sure we're seeing this in the proper light and in the proper context to understand what's going on here. But at the end of the day, we need to make sure that as we approach any matter of morality within the scriptures, we are listening to God as students and subjects, not as judges over what he has to say. I think what we'll see as we look in the Old Testament is that the law ultimately regulated slavery without endorsing it. And we see this principle many times throughout the Old Law. We're going to focus primarily today on the Old Law. Uh, This is not the law for all time. This is not the law for all people. This is not a law that we are under today. But it is a law that was delivered by Jehovah God to the Jews, and it does in many ways teach us something about his character. But I want you to notice this principle in Matthew 19. If you want to turn your Bibles over there, in Matthew 19, Jesus is questioned about divorce according to the old law. In Matthew 19, um, you'll notice earlier in this passage, they question him Asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
Jesus responds in verse 6, citing God's design for man and woman from the beginning. He says in verse 6, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together and let not man separate. Verse 7, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What's Jesus' response? They, they say, wait a second, you said that you know, we, we, we shouldn't get divorces, that what God has joined together we shouldn't separate. Well, then, then why did Moses... The way they say it, why did Moses command us to to give a certificate of of divorce and then send her away? And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, Moses allowed that to go on. But from the beginning, it was not so. Much of what God addresses in the old law is going to regulate human brokenness is going to regulate sin, is going to set some limits on what they were allowed to do and what they would be punished for doing and how they'd be punished for doing it without putting his stamp of approval upon it. I want us to actually go back to the passage that Jesus is speaking of or that the Jews are referencing here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And I want you to remember the words of the Jews. They said, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? See if that's what is happening here. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Do you notice the way that that's phrased? God doesn't say, you know, if you get tired of your wife, I'm totally fine with you giving her a certificate of divorce. Go ahead and send her away. What he says is if this happens and if you do this, then these are some limits that I'm putting on it. This is what you call case law, where it references a a case, and if this happens, this is how you're going to handle it. That doesn't necessarily mean that God is putting his stamp of approval, that he's endorsing that that is a good practice. Later on uh, in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 7, notice it says, uh, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Same general construction here. If this happens, then this is how you handle it. Does that mean that God is condoning the if part of that? That God is saying that it is morally upright and good? Certainly not. In fact, in this case, it is very clearly being punished. So this is what you call case law. 
And a great deal of the Old Testament is going to handle human brokenness and human sin. And just because God is setting some limits and regulations on that doesn't mean his approval of it. Doesn't mean his endorsement of it. Something that we might be able to understand today, you know, advocates of laws against late-term abortion aren't promoting abortion in the first and second trimester, are they? You, you, you might look at a law that, that prevents abortion in the third trimester and say, how barbaric that they're allowing it in the first and second. Well, wait, that's, that's not the point of the law. The point of the law is to set some limits that in our cultural climate, we, we are trying to advocate as much as we can that this is the limit and you can't go any farther than that. Um, now, that may not be a perfect parallel, but I think we understand this general concept that God setting a limit on something doesn't mean that he endorses everything up to that limit. And I think that's what we're going to see to a great extent as we approach the topic of slavery. God ultimately is going to regulate this practice that made up, by the time of the New Testament, 85 to 90 percent of the economy. That doesn't mean his endorsement of these practices. In fact, uh, God is in the old law going to be very countercultural to much of the ancient Near East law in dealing with the topic of slavery. And so ultimately, the law did not promote slavery, but protected slaves. The passage that we just read, uh, that Christopher read for us in Exodus chapter 21, you notice here what is said is that if a Hebrew slave, if he becomes in a situation where, where he has to sell himself as a slave, this is an economic decision that he's going to have to make. We'll see that even made clearer in other passages. If this is the case, then he is to serve six years and no more. And after six years, he is to be let out free. It doesn't matter how big his debt was. It doesn't matter if that six years paid off his debt. His debt is to be absolved, and he is then to be let free. And so God is setting a limit on slavery here. That if this man finds himself in a situation where he needs to uh, become a slave, that that is only to be the case for a limited period of time. Now, he does go on to say, if, if he goes in married, he is to go out married. Uh, you're not to, to, to keep his, his wife from him. If, however, he makes the decision to start a family uh, among that household while he is there that doesn't then free uh, his wife from the obligations of her contract. Uh, and he's not able to, to, just because he got married to her, then take her and the rest of them out of, of slavery. Uh, and so it says that uh, if he makes the decision to start a family while he's in there, then he has a couple options. He can go out free on his own. Or he can say, I love my master. Notice that's where he starts. He, this has been a good situation for him. Good so much that he decided to start a family while he was there. I love my master, my wife, and my children. And so he makes the decision not to go out free. And so it was either to be limited or to be voluntary. That he would then make the decision economically uh, because he loves his master in that household to stay and continue to serve his master. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the conditions of 
his servanthood or his slavery, but this is much more like indentured servitude, not simply him being treated as, as property, um, as not having value within himself. You'll notice in 7 through 11, it goes on to set a, a different standard for women. By the time that we get to Deuteronomy 15 here in just a moment, we're going to see that this law does apply to men and to women. What's being addressed here in uh, Exodus 21 verse 7, when it talks about selling a man selling his daughter, is that ultimately she is to be taken in as part of the household. Either she is to marry the master or she's to marry the master's son and she is to be treated as a daughter or as a wife. And if she gets to a point where she's being treated as a second class wife, notice there in verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment for her money. Here, if he begins to treat her as a second-class wife, then she is to go out free, uh, and we'll see what that looks like by the time we get to Deuteronomy 15. Uh, And so God's provision here is that she should become a full part of the household, uh, a wife or a daughter-in-law, and if not, she is to be redeemed. If she is not redeemed and she's being treated as a second-class wife, he is to let her go out free without any payment, even though originally... Uh, this was an economic decision that her family had to make on, her, on uh, her behalf. But notice in Deuteronomy 15 now, it expands this idea and tells us a little bit more about what this would look like. Read with me in Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 12. It says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And he goes on to give the same provision that if he says uh, that I love my master and, my ha- and his household and I'm well off, more well off with him, he can make the decision to stay there permanently. But notice when he lets him go free, not only is he absolved fully of his debt, regardless of how big that debt was after the six years of service, but he was to be amply provided for so that he had enough to start a new life. Uh, God's design here was not for lifelong slavery unless that was voluntary because it was to the, uh, the, the servant's advantage. And so God here sets a limit on this um, and regulations on this ultimately to protect the slave. We'll also see in Leviticus 25 that he was to be treated as a hired servant, as an employee, ultimately. Look in Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 39. says, If your brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. 
He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. He says if, if a man does become in a situation where he has to sell himself as a slave, you shouldn't treat him as a slave. Uh, yes, he, he, he sold himself to you, but you treat him as a hired hand. You don't rule ruthlessly over him as if over uh, a slave, which would have been the, the, the standard of what slavery was in, in the ancient Near East. That's not what this is. He says this is to be you treating him with dignity, you treating him with value. And in addition to the law that would said he could only serve for six years unless he made a decision to stay uh, permanently, also at the year of Jubilee, that's every 50th year, that it doesn't, it doesn't matter at what point in his six years of service was, if he comes along the year of Jubilee, all servants that haven't made this permanent commitment would be set free. And so these are God's standards to preserve and protect those who entered into slavery. And you see here in this context, one of the primary means of that happening was an economic decision made by the family or made by the individual for their behalf, to make sure that their needs were being provided for by selling themselves or selling their family members uh, in this way uh, for their good. Not only that, but if we go back to Exodus 21 in verse 16, uh, we, we already saw this specifically in Deuteronomy 24 verse 7 um, stated of Israelites that kidnapping was a capital offense. But notice here it is stated more generally, Exodus 21 and verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If this law were observed, the entire transatlantic slave trade would have died overnight. Every buyer, every seller would have been put to death. That's God's standard. So when, when we think in our history of what we Think of when the word slavery is used. That's not what we're talking about here. They were not to kidnap. They were not to, to sell as slaves. Uh, they were to have these protections to make sure this was limited, this was voluntary, that they were not ruled over ruthlessly, that they were not taken advantage of. And in addition to that, uh, there were protections against abuse. If you're here in Exodus 21, notice verse 26 and 27. It says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, eye and tooth are just two examples. There's a principle being set here that if in any way a slave is punished, to cause permanent damage, he is to be let free. He's not going to be in a situation where he is continually being abused. Uh, if he has this permanent damage uh, upon him, it doesn't matter if he's in the first year of his service, if he's in the sixth year of his service. Uh, it doesn't matter if he had committed uh, to a lifetime of service. He is to be let free 
um, for that punishment. Now this contrasts um, very starkly with the other laws in the ancient Near East of the surrounding nations. By contrast, the Code of Hammurabi permitted a master to cut off his disobedient slave's ear. In most ancient Near Eastern law codes, masters, not slaves, were financially compensated for any injury to their slaves. And so when you think about the, the culture in which this law is being given, this is revolutionary to the standards of that time. Um, normally, there would be no repercussion uh, for mutilating one's slaves. Here, God says in any of these cases where, where there is permanent damage, he is to be set free. We also see verse tw uh, 20 and 21 in Exodus 21. It says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, understand this is a much more difficult passage for us to read. But I, I, I don't want to sweep anything under the rug. I want us to, to, to try to, to see this, and maybe our translation makes this sound um, more distressing than it, it would be. But if we understand the, the context here, first of all, it's probably helpful to recognize that, that the beating of, of, with rods was not something just done to slaves. In fact, in the old law, in Proverbs, uh, that was a, a standard procedure for children. So we're not talking uh, necessarily when we talk about the rod uh, with something that is abusive. Obviously, here in Exodus 21, it has become abusive. But it shows us that if murder was intentional, the life of the master was to be forfeited. He was to be avenged. His, his servant was to be avenged, the ESV says. And so his life was in danger. Now, verse 21 says, but if the slave survives a day or two. What, what's going on here? is uh, if it cannot be confirmed that the murder was, in fact, intentional, uh, the death penalty was not to be imposed. If you'll compare this with verse 18 and 19, there's a similar situation here um, where there, there was somebody who, who stood uh, and walked. Literally, verse 21 says, but if the slave stands a day or two, is kind of the, the literal translation of that word. And so if it can't be confirmed, that this was intentional, the owner was not to be put to death. And I think that the point, although the translation here may make this sound uh, more distressing to us where it says, for the slave is his money, is that he is losing the, the economic, uh, the, the debt that should have been paid to him uh, is part of the penalty or maybe the primary penalty that he is paying in that case. Now, we may not feel like that's going far enough. Just as we may not feel that prohibiting abortion in the third trimester is going far enough. But this is case law. Um, this is setting a limit. This is not setting an ideal. It's not set up to encourage abuse. In fact, it's set up to strongly discourage it. If you know that if you 
beat your slave too hard and you may accidentally put him to death, that your life is going to be forfeit? Do you think that might encourage you to be a little bit more careful? If you know that if you cause any permanent damage, that you are going to have to let that set slave go free, do you think that might encourage you to be much more careful in how you handle that situation? Again, this is case law. It is not in any way encouraging or setting an endorsement on these practices, but it is setting a limit on them. And so God, by setting limits such as this, is encouraging uh, and, and trying to, to set some limits on any type of uh, abuse, though it may be done uh, under the guise of, of punishment. Beyond that, we see that runaway slaves were to be protected. Let, let's say that there was a slave that was being consistently abused, maybe of a surrounding nation, where these things were permitted, where they could have their ear cut off uh, and have no reprisal for that. Well, if one of those slaves comes along, it says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 and 16, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So this gives slaves, even of other nations, a safe haven from unjust oppression and abuse. Again, um, God is, is setting laws in place to preserve and protect those who are in situations of oppression and abuse. Finally, the only provision for slave ownership, other than what we talked about, the voluntary uh, situation uh, where he would be a permanent slave, was for those acquired from other nations, uh, ultimately improving the conditions of their servitude. You'll see this in Leviticus 25, verses 44 through 46. While among God's people this was not allowed, um, as it was a common practice in the other nations, they were allowed to take those slaves out of a situation where they could be lawfully abused and mutilated into a situation where they had protections. Uh, now, they were to stay in that household. They were to be a lifelong slave. They could be passed on uh, to children even. But I think we see here God taking people from a worse situation to a uh, better situation. In fact, if you'll read, as you continue to do your Bible reading, Look throughout many of the festivals and look at what it says about uh, the masters having their slaves come to the table uh, and join them uh, in the, even the observance of the, the Passover, of, of the Feast of Weeks and other things such as that. These were not to be considered dehumanized people. These were not to be considered people to be abused. These were ultimately considered members of the household. You can see that. Uh, and Abraham and the way that he treats some of his servants, certainly as well. Uh, and so they, they were allowed to keep lifelong uh, slaves in this situation if they were bringing them out of these other nations into uh, God's people. There may be some things in those laws that impress us, uh, especially in contrast to the laws of neighboring nations and what was culturally acceptable among the societies of that time, there may be other aspects that trouble us about what the law permitted. But I think 
What's important to realize is that the law was not the ideal. It paved the way for the ideal. Uh, you, you might almost consider it um, a progression. You have the ancient Near East and its laws and its standards. Then you have the Old Covenant. And then you have the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant is starting to set some limitations and regulations in place that point us towards a value system that is ultimately going to bring us to a new kingdom and a new ideal. As Jesus said in Matthew 19 in regard to divorce, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Well, what does the Bible tell us from the beginning about slavery? Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. We see that God created man and woman, all of humanity, in his image. All humans bear the mark of the divine within their souls. God has placed immeasurable value within each and every one of us, regardless of class, of social standing, regardless of ethnicity or skin color. We are all bearers of the image of our creator. And notice what Job 31 says. Job, an upright man who feared God, notice what his attitude was towards the institution of slavery. He says in verse 13, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Here Job recognizes that there, there is not a distinction in value here. Um, there, there's not you know, some class system in God's eyes, some caste system in God's eyes. Ultimately, he was created by the same God, imprinted with the same image. And therefore, I need to treat him as one who has equal standing before our creator. But the old law not only looks back to an original ideal, it also looks forward to a coming ideal. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that there is a new covenant coming. Jeremiah 31 talks about that. Not like the Old Covenant. God is preparing for something new. And we have many prophecies looking forward to that. In Joel chapter 2, in verse 28 and 29, you remember this is the passage that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. It says in Joel 2, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Old and young, male and female, slave and free, God is offering his fellowship and his spirit, the cleansing power of his spirit, to all flesh, all people, equally, just as he has imprinted us with his image equally. And in this new kingdom, uh, there is a sense of e equality. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction in status or value before the eyes of our creator. We are all equally his servants. 
the servants of a benevolent master who wants to take us as children within his household. And so Jesus shows us the ideal that, that was taught in the Old Testament, that we should love our neighbor as ourself. That even in the Old Covenant was the standard. Now God set some regulations and some limitations on human brokenness, on human evil, on institutions that were generally accepted in the society of that time. But he still taught them the principle to love their neighbor as themselves. And we see that in God's new kingdom becoming a much greater reality. We're not going to spend much time today talking about the New Testament's treatment of slavery. As we've been reading through some of these passages in our Bible reading in the Old Covenant, that's what I wanted to focus on. But I will say this. Ultimately, the New Testament shows us that we can bat the brokenness of our culture by shining the light of a better kingdom. Jesus' primary mission wasn't to change the social structures of the government in which he lived. Um, in this time period, where, as we said, 85 to 90 percent of the Roman Empire, in one sense or another, was considered a slave. Now, maybe it would be good to mention um, that that ranges all the way from your lowest of the low manual laborers all the way to people who are very high in society and yet still considered slaves. Um, but God's mission, Jesus' mission, was not to revolutionize the social structures of that nation and that kingdom, but to shine the light of another kingdom. And so much of what we see in the New Testament treating this institution of slavery is showing God's people how they can shine his light even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of hardship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 21 holds up servants and slaves who showed forth this character even in the midst of hardship as following the example of Jesus. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Certainly, as hearts are transformed, as the light of God's kingdom is shown to the world around us, it should change social structures. It should change uh, political mindsets towards uh, human oppression. But the primary mission is for us each individually to become part of a new kingdom and to shine the light of that new kingdom no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Uh, whether as many in First Peter uh, we find ourselves suffering persecution and oppression. Our mission in that is to show forth a deeper character, um, a character of love even for our enemies, even for those who have wronged us. I know we haven't addressed every issue or answered every question today in regard to slavery within scriptures, but I hope at least we've showed how the old law regulated the brokenness and injustice of the ancient Near East culture it was a temporary fix preparing the way for a much greater kingdom that we can all be fellow citizens in. 
certainly we are servants. We are slaves of a benevolent creator and master. And what a blessing it is to be part of his household. But by his grace, we can be more than servants. We can be more than slaves. He wants us to be his children. Have you allowed Christ to to pierce your ear, to put an all through your ear and make you his permanent servant? That's really uh, a picture of what we ultimately seek to be for the Lord, that we love our master and we love his family and we want to serve him forever. If you recognize today that, that you have not fully submitted your heart and your life to our loving uh, and gracious creator, won't you be willing to surrender your life to him today? If you confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, you can bury your old life in the waters of baptism, and you can be raised to walk a new life, a life of peace, of joy, of hope, because we serve a loving creator. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord today, if there is some sin in your life that you need to confess before these brethren, that we can help you and support you and pray for you in that. We want to give you that opportunity now as we stand and sing together.